This morning, uh, I, I decided to actually keep on in the series that we're in because I just saw so many Easter themes uh, in this First uh, Samuel passage. So we, we've been in a series on the books of Samuel and the search for a better king. And so if you would open your Bibles to First Samuel 20, I'm going to read some from chapter 18 as well, and we're going to have both of those um, up here for you, but you can turn to 20 to see what I'm talking about there. This is uh, verse, uh, chapter 18, verse 1 through 5. As soon as he'd finished speaking to Saul, the son of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of of Saul's servants. And then this is from chapter 20. Okay. I hate when I do this. 12? Okay, thank you. That's very helpful. And Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan, and more also if I do not disclose it to you, and send you away that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father." If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are a speaking God. And you, the resurrected Lord, were not pinned in by the grave, but instead have trampled on the powers of sin and death, that you might stand before your people and yet proclaim to us your good news. I pray, God, that we would listen, that our hearts would be soft, that our ears would be open. And I pray, God, that by our by the power of your Holy Spirit, we might respond faithfully. Lift yourself up, Lord Jesus, and help us to see you. Amen. The, uh, the Paschal greeting that we, that we started with this morning is, is something that should be repeated often today. So let's do it again. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. risen Christ is risen. risen 
That is the good news uh, that the church has been proclaiming for 2,000 years, and we will keep proclaiming until uh, Jesus stands again on the earth. We stand in a long continuity of people who are together proclaiming this wondrous, unexpected good news. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. This story... uh, the story of David and Jonathan is, is one of the small subplots of 1 Samuel that it makes it the book most distinct. Uh, chapter 20 that we read from, 12 through 17, uh, is, is just about the longest chapter in the book of 1 Samuel. And that sort of length is meant to tell you something. It gives a lot of detail and importance uh, to what goes on here in chapter 20. Um, this is sort of the moment we say goodbye to Jonathan. Uh, Jonathan has been this faithful presence in the story. Remember, he is the son of Saul, and Saul is the first king of Israel. That should make Jonathan the second king of Israel. And what we see in Jonathan, that he is faithful not just to his father, but to to God. And that uh, sets him apart, actually, from his father. His father is descending into the madness of self-obsession and paranoia, that is the judgment of God for his lack of obedience. And Jonathan just keeps being this faithful presence in the story, that he faithfully recognizes the word of God and recognizes David as the appointed next king. And he lays aside his own claim, his natural claim to the throne, to support what we see as his friend. And, and commentators will point out that, that Jonathan actually is, we think of him and David as peers, like buddies that might hang out. Jonathan is, is actually probably quite a bit older than, than David, a couple decades at least. And so what you have is an older man who is knit in friendship to a younger man, and he is divesting himself of all his claims to power and authority, which especially in the ancient Near East is ridiculous. An older man doesn't defer to a younger man for anything. But Jonathan recognizes that God has called David. And we saw in 18 this, uh, this special bond. It says their, their hearts were knit together, and Jonathan makes this covenant with David to, to support him and to be knit to him in friendship and to not betray him. And he gives him all the trappings of his rule and his reign. And in 20, what's happening is that, that friendship, that covenant, is, is not really being tested so much as being exemplified. Because Saul is, is ready to kill David. And David, um, it seems like in some sense, wants Jonathan to see the kind of danger that he's in. And so David should be theoretically present with Saul because he's the king's man. But David tells Jonathan, that your, your dad's going to kill me. And Jonathan can't quite believe it, even though he, he maybe should. And uh, they devise this test that David will, will hang out for three days. And Jonathan will come and tell him, basically, if it's safe. And what we'll see is Jonathan will tell his father, Saul, that David has been allowed to return to Bethlehem to be with his family, and Saul will lose it. Uh, Saul, throughout the book now, will only ever appear with a spear in hand, with this strange kind of haunting resonance with Goliath the giant. And the, the king with the spear will hunt down even his own son. And Jonathan will see the murderous intent of his father. And he will then go out to this field where they've made this covenant that we read. And they will uh, say goodbye. 
It's actually, I think, kind of funny. They devised this whole scheme of how to communicate to one another through this, uh, the saying of a servant and like, this is the signal and like, pull the ear and like, they'll be gone. And Jonathan communicates, he gives the signal through his servant. Then he tells his servant to leave and David just walks out. And I don't understand why they don't just like tell each other just to leave, but I don't know. That's just what it is. But there's these extended scene at the end of chapter 20 of their goodbye. And it's really strange because these books of history move very quickly and are not that interested in giving lots of details. But there's several verses of details given to this really heartfelt goodbye between Jonathan and David. And Jonathan will exit the story at the end of chapter 20. He'll, as one commentator put, he will just sort of, as this glowing figure, just fade into black. We'll see him right at the end of 1 Samuel, but he'll die. That's all he's going to do. And David begins this long series of evading his father. Um, Jonathan is a unique figure because he's actually the, the son that's passed over, but he's not passed over for doing anything wrong. And there's a long history of sons being passed over. Uh, the, the book of Genesis starts with the story of Cain and Abel, and Cain is passed over because he's, he's murderous. Esau is passed over because well, he's a dummy, and he, uh, he gives away his inheritance cheaply. There's reasons why all along that we see that the firstborn son is passed over. And yet Jonathan is unique in this story because he, there is nothing wrong with him. He's this virtuous figure that gives up his place. You know, the, you can read the story of Jonathan and David, and it's, it's hard not to be confronted by Jonathan. Not, not because he's direct and wagging a finger at you, but <clears throat> because if you're like me, it's, it's hard to see yourself in Jonathan's role handling it as well as he does. This young man is... Basically, the rights that he has are ripped away from him, and he graciously accepts his fate and goes along with it. You know, I, I myself, I have a, a, a certain set of ideas for my station in this world, and I, I often go through life looking at peers of mine or, or friends of friends of mine, and I compare myself, and, and usually when I find myself comparing in this sort of mindset, it's usually because I feel like I'm better than them. You know, the comparison is usually not comparing me to person A and saying, you know, fair enough, they've got some strengths there. Uh, it's usually, actually, I'm a lot better. Why do they get the nice stuff? You know, why do they get whatever, the, the book deal or the job? Or why do, why do people like them? Why don't they like me more? And... I have this incredible, insatiable need inside me that, that I have to consciously check all the time to not make everything about me. And so when I see Jonathan right, giving up his rights, surrendering so willingly to the exaltation, the advancement of another, it's profoundly convicting. It's one of those moments when Scripture rubs against you and, and makes you realize what's there even though you're ashamed of what's there. But Jonathan is able to do that, not just because he is virtuous in and of himself, but because he clearly sees what is the will of God. 
and what he trusts is that what God wants actually is better than what he might crave. You know, there, there is nothing wrong for a, position, a man in Jonathan's position to crave to be king. You know, God raises people up to be that and to do it well, to exercise justice and wisdom. And if such a man who's just and wise as Jonathan is this close to that position, it's a good thing for him to want to be in that position. And yet what he sees and what he hears, what he trusts, is that God is doing something different and he can then trust that what God wants to do is actually good. And what the goodness of God might want to do in this situation is far better than anything that he'd ever hoped for. This is the only way that you and I can ever hope to be people like Jonathan. If we can actually get to the place where we can look at the will of God and say, that actually would be better, and I'm willing and ready to go with it. That, that is profoundly difficult, right? It's not an easy thing to trust that. I actually think that one of the primary reasons why that is so difficult for us is we come to stories like this, and, and instead of seeing what God is like as he sometimes invisibly, sometimes quietly, sometimes forcefully asserts himself in, in Israel's history in the book of Samuel, we see instead the figure of Saul. And we think that that's actually what God is like. We think that, that God is, is actually like this angry tyrant who probably does not have our best interests at heart. He is the angry king that we, we are afraid to trespass. And we fear that his spear might be pointed at our chest. But the text is not teaching us that. If anything, it, it's teaching us the very opposite of that. Saul is, is not the embodiment of what God is like in, in the text. Saul is the embodiment of the worst of everything about us. He is this embodiment of a sinful tyrant and the tyranny of sin. When the rage of Saul's self-delusion and paranoia reaches its fulfillment, we should hear instead that all of these instincts that we battle all the time, this is where it will take us. This is not what God is like. Saul is actually what we are like. We are the person who would rather pierce the opponent in front of us. We are the person who would, when God clearly establishes a different route than we expected, might say, well, I'd rather kill the means of this new plan than trust that God might do good to me. David and Jonathan are knit together in this friendship. And this friendship becomes for us a way of seeing forward. There are these sounding resonances in this story in the Old Testament that will actually point us forward to what the real king is actually like. And oftentimes, when we're reading the text, David is, is kind of the, the window through which we look to see what Israel's king will be like. But in this case, Jonathan is the better window for us. Jonathan has all the rights 
to kingship and authority. And what he does is he willingly lays that kingship and authority aside. You know, Paul will, will look at the story of Jesus and use very similar language and say that Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but instead emptied himself and took on flesh. Jonathan embodies for us this, this loving and humble king who is submitted to this greater king, and he will lay aside all the trappings of authority and power so that the, the will of God might be advanced. And Jesus will do very similar. He will lay aside all of his rights to ruling and reigning, and instead being obedient to the will of the Father, which is the best that could be offered. He will become one of us and not rule and reign seemingly at first, but become like one who is a servant. Jonathan will show us that, that God is like this. He's not the angry king that is willing to destroy his, his opponents. But Jesus actually shows us that Jonathan not just lays aside his claims to authority, but will instead do what Jonathan didn't do. Instead of dodging the spear that this power of sin, this tyranny of death will lob at him, Jesus will step into the path of the spear so that his friend, his friends, might be forever secured. Because when Jesus receives in his body the spear that is thrown, he will wrest the spear away from the enemy forever. He will take the power of this anger and this sin and this evil and this wickedness that is outside of us and inside of us, this tyranny that will make us crazy with paranoid self-obsession. And he will receive all of the violence that is there. And he will take that enemy and wrestle him and his spear down into the grave with him. The symbol of, of Jonathan and David's Friendship is visibly this transfer, this giving of Jonathan's kingly place to David. He'll clothe him with his robe. He'll clothe him with his armor and his weaponry. He will say, in effect, you are the rightful prince. And this is where the, the, the story diverges there are resonances here between Jonathan's story and Jesus' story, but the story somehow gets better. Because in the end of 1 Samuel 20, Jonathan fades out. He just sort of fades into the distance. And this is maybe what the disciples were feeling at the end of Good Friday. And Jesus is killed. Their, their hopes of this good, possible king, this possible Messiah, their hopes are fading fading to black as he dies. But Jesus is not just like Jonathan. He's better than Jonathan. Because when Sunday comes, Jesus will not accept this place of just fading into the background. But he will do all that Jonathan could not do. And he will reemerge from the blackness of the tomb, arrayed in glory. What he doesn't do then is take back his robe that he has given to his friends. 
Jesus is arrayed in power and all the trappings of kingship when he steps out of the, the grave on Easter Sunday. And what he does is he, he leaves those trappings of power and placement and position and he distributes them to all of his friends, bound in covenant love with them forever. Now this psalm that we open with from Psalm 89, this section of Psalm 89, speaks of God doing just this. He has this covenant love with David and his household. He says, even if his sons will depart from me in sin and iniquity, I will punish and I will, I will give with the stripe and the rod, but I will not take my covenant love from him. Of course, God will be faithful to his word in Psalm 89. And he will give the rod and the stripe to punish and destroy the powers that would destroy us. And Jesus shares the benefits of that faithful covenant to all of his people. Paul will, will talk about it in Romans 6. We were baptized, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Hopefully that passage is familiar to you. We read it every time we have a baptism. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you all must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. When Jesus is resurrected in resurrection glory, wearing the, the vestiges of resurrection, we are clothed in the same clothes that he wears. So when Jesus gives, uh, is resurrected from the tomb, he is giving us an inheritance that he himself wears. He clothes us, his friends, with this incorruptible glory. Jesus does for us what Jonathan does for David, but he does it on a grander scale. He does it so much better. The resurrection of Jesus is about the crowning of Jesus forever. He is enthroned in glory. He displays himself on the cross saying, this, this is what the good king is like. This is what the, the king of heaven and earth really is like. He is not like Saul. He is not the one who is, who is hunting down all of those that might steal his glory. He is the one who came as a servant to serve those who would crucify him. 
He's not, he's not like Saul who is hunting down everyone who might crowd in or, or distract. He is instead all the people like you and me who are leaping in front of him saying, no, no, look at me, look at me, see my glory, see me. He is instead rescuing all of those people whom he should rightly treat as a traitor. And the one who is the anointed and rightful prince, the anointed and rightful Lord of heaven and earth. His glory He displays by being pierced. His glory He displays by dying and then somehow miraculously, wondrously treading on death itself. So when you take on His cloak, you take on a cloak of His own glory that is incorruptible. Now, the New Testament will say, Paul will say, you are in Him. You are clothed in Christ. Now you have within you His Spirit helping you to cry out to the good King of heaven and earth, Abba, Father. He makes us, Paul will say, sons and daughters. What Jesus will say is ultimately there doesn't just have to be one. There's only one Son of God. But we get His inheritance. We get His portion. Somehow, Paul says, He becomes our brother. God is is not afraid or challenged by us that He might need to be paranoid to, to crush you. He is imminently secure in Himself. And he is not just seeking to destroy all who would oppose him because he is worried that you might unseat him. He knows the facts of the matter. He will not be unseated. But he is profoundly generous in his conquest. And he wants us, instead of pushing us far away, he wants us to bring us into his household, sons and daughters forever. The risen Lord Jesus stands before you and he, he beckons to you. He beckons to you that you would come closer and trust that God is immeasurably good to you. And whatever inheritance you have been given, whether it is the inheritance of a terrible family who has mistreated and abused you or simply abandoned you, whether it is the inheritance of your own folly, you have given away yourself to any number of things trying to establish your own kingdom. Whatever inheritance you have established for yourself or has been given to you, God stands before you saying He would like to give you His own cloak. He would like to clothe you in His own glory. Do you trust Him? Do you trust the resurrected Lord Jesus to do a good thing that is maybe better than any other plan you have constructed? The question is presented to us time and again just like it was to Jonathan. Do you trust the goodness of God's plan in the world? And do you trust His faithfulness to His people? If you have never trusted that before, This 
is what is on display. And this is God's offer. Do you want to be in Him? Do you want to be miraculously clothed in His own position and power, brought in close in the family of God? And if you have been living your own way, if you said, yeah, I'm in on that. That, that sounds good. At some point, I'm, I'm a Christian. That whole thing sounds good. But then you've been going off your own way. You might have been living for a long time afraid that God will see your, your in and out, your, your muddling, your wobbling, and that He might want to be done with you because He just doesn't have any patience left for you. But I'm here to remind you that God does not change. That His faithfulness is secured forever. As we read in that Psalm 89, He will forever be steadfast to His Son and the people of His Son. You should take heart because the door is open to the King's house. However far away you have been, there will not be some delayed process by which He maybe will, maybe will not accept you. But He will instead come and scoop you home where He's always ever wanted you to be. Jesus stands in front of us, the resurrected Lord, with arms spread, the cloak of His righteousness and glory spread over us. Come home. Come home and leave aside all your other vain seeking. Revel in His glory and goodness and grace. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for your scripture which speaks so loudly to, to show us how, how deeply we fall short and yet also exalts you, highlights you, magnifies you to show how you, the hero of the story, surpass our deepest hopes. You better all of our fears. God, we confess to You that we have spoken poorly of You, that we have thought poorly of You, that we have acted against You. God, I pray that all of us will see the rebellion that we've given ourselves over to and that to this morning we would not be afraid that God would treat us on the basis of our merits. But instead, we will see Jesus We'll see Jesus who has trampled on sin and death, wrestling the spear of the enemy into the ground, into the grave, disarming him forever. God, we thank you for your persistence with us. Help us then to faithfully respond in love. We are so grateful for what you've done for us and what you've won for us. Thank you for bringing us home, Lord Jesus. Amen.